Stay connected this winter with this unbeatable deal from BreezeLine. Get reliable, fiber-powered internet for just $19.99 per month with all-in pricing for two years. But that's not all. Your first month is on us. This deal gets better with a free modem and installation along with free Wi-Fi your way whole home coverage. Safeguard your network from cyber threats and keep all your devices connected and secured with this amazing offer. Act now. Terms and conditions apply. Offer expires March 3rd, 2024. Learn more at BreezeLine.com. Welcome to Safe America. I'm Dan Pfeiffer. We're coming to you with yet another interview in our endless series of interviews with Democratic presidential candidates. This time you'll hear a conversation I had with Ohio Congressman Tim Ryan. We talked about health care, the economy, how Democrats can win the Midwest. We even talked about yoga, which is a passion of his, believe it or not. Here's the conversation. Congressman Tim Ryan. Welcome to Pod Save America. Thanks for having me. All right. Let's start by giving you an opportunity to introduce yourself to our listeners. What led you to a career in politics? I played a lot of sports growing up, and I was a quarterback and kind of always in a leadership position. I was in a fraternity. <laughs> I was the president of the fraternity. Looks familiar in this room. <laughs> um, and so uh, I came from an area in, in Northeast Ohio where a lot of my friends left. Um, the, the economy wasn't doing well and people were leaving. They'd go to school, go to college and leave. And I wanted to do something about it. So my career in politics really started about downtown redevelopment. Like what are, what are the next generation, what's the next generation of jobs that are going to become available? And I, I can go back to my first palm card I made and on it was renovate the Robbins theater. And it was an old theater in the downtown, and we just had no quality of life for young people. So it really started from how do we rebuild this community? And so you're running for president. Uh, That's a long way from yeah, the palm card yes, you with can, the Robbins theater on it. It always starts, somewhere, it starts on a palm card somewhere. Um, when you got in this race, there were you know at least a dozen other people already in the race. You, know, you had liberals, moderates, people from the coast, people from the Midwest, a number of your uh, colleagues in the House of Representatives. What did you see in the field that you thought was lacking that you thought you were uniquely qualified to bring to this race? I think two things. One, connect to voters we lost, you know, just from a sheer political standpoint. The country's really divided. I don't think most people like that. And I think I can really help pull the country back together. I know these voters. They voted for me. They voted. Some of them voted for Donald Trump. Um, we're in a battleground state and all that. The second thing was, I, I really believe that I understand deeply because of where I come from, the old economy, what's happened. You know, one of the biggest calls I get to my congressional office is around pensions, like just the insecurity that has come from really a a forty year collapse and a failure for us to really rebuild. I understand that. And through that experience, I really studied and understand, I think, where we need to go in the new economy. And, you know, around electric vehicles, around AI, around additive manufacturing. And I'll just give you one example. In the late 1970s, when Youngstown Sheet and Tube closed, my father-in-law actually worked there. 
the technology in the steel mills was pre-World War I. The steel industry basically put their head in the sand. They were afraid. They didn't want to change. They were still making some money. And then the bottom fell out. I think we're in a very similar position today. You know, you hear a lot of stories and read a lot of stories about artificial intelligence and job loss and the future of work and what's the economy going to look like. I think we've got to make a decision that we are going to embrace these technologies. We're going to grab them and we're going to try to dominate them. And we're going to infuse them into every industry we possibly can, ramp up productivity and cut the worker in on the deal. I mean, the other alternative we already experienced and in places like Youngstown we're still suffering the consequences from the fear that had everybody's head in the ground. You know, we have um, politicians, Democrats on Pod Save America all the time, who are very good at diagnosing the challenges that communities like yours are facing, yeah. automation, globalization, et cetera. What we often struggle to get to elicit from Democrats is, an an- is a, a big, bold answer to mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. challenge. What is Tim Ryan's big idea to deal with these two forces of automation globalization that are mm-hmm. going nowhere. How, well, look, what's the thing we actually do that is very different than what we are doing now? We create a national industrial policy around dominating these industries, around dominating electric vehicles. There's one to two million today. There's going to be 30 million by uh, 2030. We need to dominate that industry. And we need to have, I have a bill that creates a chief manufacturing officer in the United States to just drive this. The president should be driving it. This was, frustrates me a lot about the president. He came in, he campaigned, and then he didn't do anything. Like he got these voters. He talked about steel mills and coal mines. He got these voters, some of them, to vote for him, but he has no plan. And what I would do is sit down with the big three and the Department of Energy and the Department of Transportation um, and venture capital and say, how do we dominate electric vehicles? How do we dominate the batteries? How do we dominate the charging stations? How do we dominate solar? How do we dominate wind? How do we dominate AI? And put a plan together. I mean, this is what China does. It's a little bit easier there, obviously, because of their their governmental structure. It's actually a lot easier. But we have got to solve this problem because right now China dominates 40% of the electric vehicle market. They dominate 60% of the solar panel market. So I think an industrial policy is first and foremost on the agenda because if we don't get the economic piece right, everything else is going to be harder to do. A lot of the things you're talking about here, whether it's electric cars, solar, wind, et cetera, is also part of climate policy in this country. How does your idea here dovetail with the Green New Deal? Is that something you support or? Yeah, I mean, I support a Green New Deal. I I love the fact that we're all having this conversation. I mean, as a presidential candidate, I can't go into an interview where someone doesn't ask me about the Green New Deal. And I absolutely love it because it is such a pressing problem. I think we've got to make sure that um, we, we do it the right way. I talk about it like I just talked about, like we didn't even talk about the environment there. Right. Industrial policy around what? Wind, solar, uh, electric vehicles. You know, I mean, that's how we I think that's how we make this argument that this is a job creator for us. We should be leading with this is our opportunity through a Green New Deal to rebuild the middle class. That's how we get there with all of these new new uh, technologies. Do I take from that that for the voters in your district in Ohio, you believe that Discussing this in a climate framework is a net political negative? Yeah. I mean, a lot of people uh, don't have the luxury of making it six steps down to, 
I'm really concerned about the environment. I mean, they get up and they're worried about paying their bills. I mean, we just had another announcement. Uh, we lost a General Motors uh, last shift of a General Motors facility in my district that used to have 16,000 workers, and we just lost the last 1,700 about a month ago. And just on Saturday, we had a transportation company, Falcon Transport, lost 800 jobs. They got an email at 8 o'clock on Saturday night saying, don't show up for work. Those people don't have the luxury of worrying about sea levels rising. I mean, I'm sorry to say it that way, but they don't. They have, they have kids in school. They have a mortgage that now they, now they lost their job. Their health care isn't as good as it should be. And, and, you know, shit's bad for them, right? It's real bad. And so if we come to them as a party and we don't first and foremost acknowledge this struggle that they are facing today, like how am I going to pay my mortgage next month? Like I maybe, I, I mean, May's coming up, right? So how are we going to pay it? I mean, that's what they're asking themselves. That's scary. And, and if we don't meet them where they are on that issue and have a plan for how we're going to get out of this mess, then they're not going to vote for us. As you know, Ohio is a state uh, that Barack Obama won twice. Yeah. Close, but pretty decisive victories. The good old days. The good old days, yes. <laughs> Your district is one that Democrats have mostly won, but I think Trump won it uh, this time. Hillary won it with 51. So closer than closer to President been, right? Obama won it with 62. Right. So a huge, yeah. huge change yeah. there. Yeah. What has changed, you know, as we look at what's happened in Ohio since 2012, what has led to that change? Is it a change in this in Ohio or is it a change in the Democratic Party? little bit of both. I think we got off of the economic message that just went at people like, we're the party to help you with the problems that I just discussed. Like, we're the ones who are going to help you with healthcare. We're the ones who are going to help you with your job, wages. And, and President Trump is very skillful. I mean, he came into the Mahoning Valley, which is the area I represent in Northeast Ohio, and he said Bill Clinton passed NAFTA. Now, most of the job loss today is from automation. But the people who lost their jobs in my area over the years, they literally moved like factories over the border in Mexico and started shipping the product back. My cousin Donnie had his last act at Delphi, which was a supplier for General Motors, was to unbolt the machine from the factory floor, put it in a box and ship it to China. I mean, workers would leave Warren, Ohio, go to Mexico, train workers and come back. So when Trump came in and said NAFTA, and her husband passed it. That was a very effective line. But the, the trade thing speaks to the inequality. It speaks to wage stagnation. It speaks to economic insecurity. Trade is now, unfortunately, in the country, that's what people hear. And Trump came in and stole that message from Democrats and was very effective. You know, the dis- like we think of, like in the constant conversations we've all had about what happened in 2016, how do we make sure it doesn't happen again, there is this sort of internal debate or tension around uh, whether it is a message problem or a policy problem on Democrats' behalf. Because Hillary Clinton's policy, economic policies, were no different and even in some cases more populist than some of Barack Obama's in 2012. Mm-hmm. Yet, is like what... Where do you is the is the Democratic Party having trouble explaining the policies it has, or does it need new policies to win back uh, constituents like yours? Um, I think it's both. You know, I really do. I think it's both. I think th- people 
don't trust either party, at least like middle of the road people or moderate Democrats, maybe it is, and independent voters. And they didn't trust Democrats and they didn't trust Republicans and they saw Trump as an independent. He was using the Republican Party, but he was an independent. And he was talking about raising taxes on rich people and expanding Medicare and, you know, he was going to do every – he had a populist agenda. And so I think people after years and years and years of frustration and stagnation, they gave him a shot because they saw him as an independent. He was rich and he had a plane. So, I mean (laughs) – I mean – Maybe he can help us get rich, you know, or at least get out of this mess that we're in. And so they gave him a chance. But I think this election is going to be about ideas. I just I think people are um, rightfully cynical, um, rightfully um, just confused about really what's going on. You know, he stole those voters. So that's why I'm trying to talk in very specific terms. Like I think electric vehicles is a really specific way to go. And you show people how it's growing. It relates to American manufacturing. It's a new industry. I don't, you know, I used to say this back in my district. Like, I don't want to get my community uh, chasing the last best thing. And that's basically what Trump did. Like, I used to campaign on telling people, like, when I was 29 years old, like, look, the steel mills aren't coming back. And if they do, they're not going to have 20,000 people in them. So we've got to shift our mindset to get in front of the next wave that's coming. And so now I'm basically applying that approach to the national effort here. And you look at additive manufacturing, growing, you know, 3D printing. In fact, we landed the first center that President Obama put together a manufacturing innovation center around around additive is in downtown Youngstown. Three to five million jobs are going to be grown in additive manufacturing in the next 10 years. Solar and wind growing at 25 to 30 percent a year. Electric vehicles, we're going to make 30 million. So how do we position not just Youngstown or Akron in my district, but how do we position the United States of America to dominate these industries and then have incentives in the tax code and policies in the government to steer that growth into communities of color, communities that have been left behind, in old coal, old steel, old auto, old rubber, Gary, Indiana. I mean, you look at some of these towns, they've been wiped out. That's ridiculous in the United States of America today. And when you look at the fact that 80% of venture capital goes to three states, California, New York, and Massachusetts, 9% less go to women and less than 2% go to people of color. So our policies need to change so we can start drive, like dominate these industries, ramp up productivity, ramp up growth, and then steer through an industrial policy the growth to these communities that did a hell of a lot for America for a long time when we were sending money out west to do the Central Arizona Project and get water into the desert and grow out the west. Um, that, w- that money was coming from the Akron rubber industry. That was coming from the Youngstown steel industry, the Western PA coal industry. And so – how do we have policies that that steer that growth back to some of those communities? How would you incentivize that? Right, like there's there are reasons that mm-hmm. the venture capital funding is in these three places, right? And yeah. so there needs to be something that to encourage them to do that. So I guess the two question would be: How do you incentivize the movement of investment out of you know the coastal states mm-hmm. into places like Youngstown? And as you like this, this is all it's industrial policy, but also you know what you're hitting at is a massive investment, right, or mm-hmm. spending of money. Have you thought about how much it would cost to achieve this uh, and how you'd pay for it or would you pay for it? Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah. I mean, at some point you have to pay for it. I think you do it through the tax code. I think you have, 
you know, Dalio's, uh, Ray Dalio's writing about this double bottom line and triple bottom line where it's not just about your profit, but it's also about some social good. So it shifts the tax code and incentives through corporate tax and other tax uh, incentives um, on how to not just be about shareholders with your company, but be about stakeholders, which is also the communities. Uh, It also means the workers and how do you incentivize that. The opportunity zones, which are uh, a component of the tax bill, probably the only really positive component of the tax bill, in which you create um, neighborhoods. Governors have done tracks in certain cities uh, about investments, and then there's an opportunity fund where people can put private investment capital gains into a fund that can be used in these opportunity zones. So you're actually trying to get some wealth out of the hands of you know, the concentrated wealth in the 1% or 10%, get it into these funds that can then reinvest in these communities. But we also need a massive urban Marshall plan. Like we have to clean these communities up. They have thousands and thousands of dilapidated homes. In Youngstown, I know we have three or 4,000. In Gary, Indiana, they have 6,000. Like those got to come down. We've got to have a huge, uh, making sure we get uh, high-speed internet into these communities. We've got to renovate the downtowns. We've got to renovate the Robbins Theater across the country so that you create a sense of place. You need river walks. You need amphitheaters. You need a big, bold vision for how we're going to redo our communities so that young people can come back to those communities. So as these tech companies, maybe they do start in Silicon Valley. But we did a thing, and I, I think we need to figure out how to institutionalize this in the Department of Commerce. Ro Khanna and I took a busload of venture capitalists, about 13 of them, in our first trip we called the Comeback Cities Tour. And we put them on a bus, and we Bloomberg helped us. Um, we did Youngstown, Akron, uh, Detroit, Flint, and, and South Bend. We went over to see Mayor Pete. This was, well, you know, a couple years ago. We have innovation happening in these towns. We have entrepreneurship. We just don't have venture capital. We don't have the money that can help ramp this up. And so having a Department of Commerce that's incentivizing and helping, you're trying to knit the country back together. And what was really interesting about it is that the venture capitalists were fascinated with what people were thinking about and what problems we were thinking about in Youngstown as opposed to Mountain View. It was a total different mindset. And so they saw it as an opportunity. Wait a minute. I can be the first one into the Midwest and and, and someone was doing a, an RV rental, like an RV timeshare, right? No one in Mountain View riding around in an RV. But someone said, I want to talk to you after. You know, I love when that had like Shark Tank. You know, it's yeah. like, oh, we're talking. You know, it was like that. And we did that. And we went down south and we did that in South Carolina and, and Georgia and North Carolina. Um, we're doing another one. We're going to Pittsburgh and uh, Columbus and Youngstown. But those are the kind of innovative ideas we need. So you set the table in these communities with the investment. You incentivize through the tax code. And then, you know, I don't have all the answers. I'm going to sit down with a bunch of smart people and say, how do we do this? I'm the president. I'm going to drive this freaking thing. I'm going to drive it. I am going to walk into the Oval Office every morning and think about the people in Youngstown, Ohio, and how do we make it better for them and the communities like them. So give me the venture capital community. Give me, you know, we'll, and I think they'll show up to the meeting. Um, and, and let's put a plan together on how we resuscitate these communities. You know, there's sort of a couple of different ways of looking at this, right? They're like a traditional sort of post-Clinton democratic policy idea is we're going to use the tax code to incentivize behavior, right? And that and that's something that President Obama tried to do a lot. 
And it often is mixed results, right? You either get unintended consequences or people don't actually do it or uh, businesses will find ways to both take advantage of the tax code and still do what they were going to do anyway. Another option is simply straight New Deal, New Deal style federal investment. Is that mm-hmm. something you would consider too as sort of a yeah. – it could be your Midwestern Marshall Plan, if you will, or something yeah. where yeah. – like a large public works program or something else to put money in the pockets of – not put it directly in people's pockets, but to – for job – for to have a like a, a surge in quality, well-paying jobs with livable wages in the Midwest. Yeah. Yes. But I think you got to do both. I mean, we don't I don't think we have the luxury today of doing one or the other. We, we literally need to rebuild because of years of uh, not doing it. So we've got, you know, you look at combined sewer in in like these towns, they have an EPA mandate for a billion dollars. Like where are they going to get a billion dollars? And if they raise rates on their local community users, they're going to drive everybody out of the city. So we have got to go in as the federal level and, and I think rebuild these communities, clean them up, as I said, Riverwalk, Amphitheater, Broadband. So then you put every town, small, mid-sized town, on the menu for growth. And so that's the public side. And, and what we have today, it's like it's either all government or free market, right? Cut taxes and trickle down or the centralized government thing. The reality of it is you need public-private partnerships. You need the opportunity zones. You need the tax code. But they're not going to invest in, in, in areas that don't have, like, the clean pipes to right. clean the water or parks or river walks and, you know, cool places and cleaning up these rivers. So it's got to be both. It just has to be. If you th- talk about the the challenge of economic insecurity for American families in Ohio and across the country, where does healthcare fit into that conversation? And how do you think about the next step post Affordable Care Act? I think we have to change the entire conversation around healthcare. And I'll tell you, you know, I've been on the uh, Medicare for All bill since two thousand and seven. I tell the new people in Congress I was on it before it was cool. Okay, so um, like I think it having an access to some public option, uh, which we tried to do, and and just we could not get it through the Senate is essential. We've got to have it. It's good for entrepreneurship. It's good for innovation. It's a social justice issue. It's it's for the working class. We've got to do that. We're having the wrong conversation though, because when you look at the money we're spending on healthcare today. We spend two and a half times as much as every other industrialized country on health care, and we get the worst results. Now, that's stupid. I mean, in any way, you know, no easy way to say that. And when you look at the fact that 75% of health care costs today come from chronic diseases that are largely preventable, okay? 75% of our health care costs come from chronic diseases that are largely preventable, which means we need to have a national conversation, not around health care necessarily, because we got to take care of the pharmaceutical industries and all that. I think we're all in agreement on that, especially in the Democratic primary. We need to have a national conversation around health, and we need to have a national conversation around food and agriculture and the rates of diabetes today, we have almost half the country, almost half the adults in, the America, in America have either diabetes or pre-diabetes. And type 2 diabetes is actually reversible. And there's companies now that are actually paying their uh, – John Hancock, for example, they're running this vitality program where they actually give their uh, clients 50 bucks to buy healthy food. And because we're seeing results of if you just change your diet, you will reverse your diabetes. 
and a diabetic costs the healthcare system 2.3 times as much as a non-diabetic. So what do we, this is 75% of our costs. We've got to talk about health and we've got to talk about what we're feeding our kids in our schools and we can't be uh, pumping them up with additive sugar and highly processed food. They're also in the Medicaid program, right? So we're paying for them to have food at school. And I went to a school a few months back. It had uh, chocolate milk and Rice Krispie treat for breakfast. Now, I'm, I'm from outside of Youngstown. I'm not a prude, right? I drink Miller Lite and watch the Cleveland Browns, and I eat chicken wings. But all I'm saying is, like 80% of the time, we've got to be doing it right, and we sh- certainly shouldn't be pumping our kids full of additive sugar. It was like 80 grams of sugar. This is, it's maybe 60 or 80 grams. But a it, lot. A lot of sugar it, for this little precious little kid. This is our kid, you know? It's not somebody else's kid. It's our kid. This is our kid in this school, and we're doing this to him. We're diminishing their cognitive ability. We're setting them on a trajectory to get diabetes. And then we're paying for that too. And then we're going to pay for their health care when they're on the Medicaid program because a lot of these schools, many of these kids are on the Medicaid program. Then we're going to pay in the health care system. And you wonder why the American taxpayer is like, I don't trust any of you people. These systems are all broken. And until you fix them, I don't want to pay any more in taxes because they're all broke. And so that's the conversation we need to have around health care because that's where the money is. Is the challenge in healthcare though ultimately that it's a for-profit industry in this country that everyone's trying to make money on it? Well, yeah, and 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 the system set up is a disease care system. It's a sick care system. It's not a preventative care system. So part of what we have to do really is is reverse the incentives today. You know, the incentives now are if you get sick. You get taken care of, and you get the doctor will get paid, and the hospital will get paid, and the health insurance companies will get paid, and everybody gets paid. How do we reverse this idea to incentivize doctors to keep us healthy? How do we incentivize patients? Like I was telling you about this vitality program, right? You start giving patients refunds and rebates for doing things right. Uh, you start giving doctors refunds and rebates for helping people get healthy. You're going to begin to shift that system, and that's that's the transformational piece of, of health care reform that has to happen or this whole thing is not going to work. I don't care if it's single-payer, public option, individual care, fee-for-service, out-of-pocket, however you want to say it, it's not going to work. You know, literally in 15 years, the average American is going to be paying more for health care uh, or as much in health care as they are for their own salary. 15 years. You brought up food policy. I know this mm-hmm. is a passion of yours. Um, you know, when I worked in uh, the White House, Mrs. Obama was leading on this. Yeah. And we got a lot of blowback from Republicans and even some Democrats about efforts to uh, get kids eating healthier in school, calorie counts on menus, yeah. sodium amount, you know, sodium uh, advisories from the FDA. Yeah. You know, your a lot of that blowback comes from legislators and people in the Midwest. Mm-hmm. Like, how do you sell healthy eating to your constituents? Well, we literally stand on Michelle Obama's shoulders. I mean, she took the hit, you know, early on, and she was right. And I think the science and the evidence is bearing it out that she was way ahead of her time. And I was there in Congress watching all this go down. And things have changed. I mean, the, the science is in. Um, industry is changing. 
people are investing into healthier foods. They're investing into shifting the market. You notice now when you go into a grocery store, you see a lot more organics. That's one example. So I think things things really are shifting. The other um, tragedy that's happening now is what's happening in rural America. I mean, farmers haven't made a profit in five years. And so I think we need to go there. We need to have, and I will, and we're going to have an aggressive campaign in rural America and say, look, this hasn't worked out for you. Uh, both the old system around food, the, the way the president handles the tariffs and everything else, these guys are hurting. One of the highest suicide rates in the country is the American farmer. I mean, that is that says it all. And so I want to invite the farmers in to be a part of the solution and how do we make sure they can transition out of the old industrial farming, row crops, uh, growing stuff that never really ends up uh, as food. You don't really eat it. Like 99% of corn you don't eat. It goes to feed. It goes to high fructose corn syrup. Same with soy. It goes into soy oil, corn, corn oil, wheat, wheat oil, and, and the products that we eat that are highly processed that are making us sick. Let's invite the farmers in and tell them you're going to make more money under me than you are under President Trump. We're going to help break the monopoly that is, exists now in rural America. So by inviting them in, in teachers are talking about this. I think the American public now knows more than ever before. And I'm at the Milken Institute here uh, in, in L.A. There are big-time donors, philanthropists, Milken himself, others, CEO of Whole Foods, they know this is where it's going. Even someone from Cargill was testifying, not testifying, Congress speak, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, she was on a panel and she was saying um, that even their company is really starting to move because they're seeing the market begin to move. And that's, that's significant. And I, I, this is an issue for me and it's, a, it, it, and it's an issue for a lot of people. So, I, I mean, I'm inviting people into this conversation um, Tim Ryan for America.com. Um, if you're interested, if you think that this is like the, the way we need to go, because we need that outside push that I don't think uh, Mrs. Obama had. I want, but the, if you look out, you go on websites, you go on Twitter, there is a significant amount of people that are really energized around the food issue. And they sit out politics because they think we're so stupid because they're like, you guys are talking about healthcare and healthcare costs and everything. No one's talking about food. And I'm giving them an opportunity to do that. I'm going to go back to trade policy for a second. Mm -hmm. It's obviously, as you pointed out, an issue that Trump was able to weaponize to win elections, talking about NAFTA. What is a thoughtful, progressive trade policy that Democrats should be running on? I believe, having voted against almost every trade agreement that has been out there, I believe that it is important now for us to figure out a trade policy where we can actually start integrating our economies, especially with the countries in Asia, um, because China is on the move. They are aggressive. They are building islands in the South China Sea. They are signing long-term raw material contracts in Africa. They have a base in Djibouti now. They're building another one. They have this Belt Road Initiative. I would encourage all of your listeners to go out and really look at what China is doing. I saw a map the other day. It had a, it had a rail line from northeast China to Rotterdam. They're going after it. You know, oil and gas, the ports in these countries. And so we have got to have a trade regime where we are really figuring out how we integrate with Vietnam, 
with deeper with Japan because Japan is kind of flirting with with China now a little bit, um, and some of these other Pacific Rim countries. We have to figure out how we at the same time protect the American worker, and I think that if you do this at the same time, the electric vehicle, the all the other stuff we talked about. If if we don't have the American family gaining in wage, gaining in economic security, we're never going to pass any trade agreement for anything. And so that's got to be the focus. But we do have to combat China with some of our economic policies, and that's a reality we have to face. When you talk about you know a trade regime that takes on China, marshalling um, other countries like Viet- Asian countries like Vietnam. That sounds to me a lot like the Trans-Pacific Partnership that President Obama was putting together. Are you saying that a President Tim Ryan would try to build on that to re- get us back involved? Like, what is that? What is what is different from what Tim Ryan was doing? Would President Tim Ryan would do than President Barack Obama was doing? Well, I think we need to make sure that the labor protections are there. We're going through this now with like the revamp of NAFTA. It's like, well, we've got some labor protection uh, protections that are in there, but there's no enforcement provisions. And so, I President Tim Ryan from Youngstown, Ohio, seeing the you know, epicenter of deindustrialization is going to make sure that our workers are taken care of. I want to make sure that the environment is taken care of, that we have balanced policies on those. We're not going to solve the climate change issue by ourselves. So we need to make sure we have partners and and really set uh, the standards there. The reality is, though, if we don't do something like China is like these countries are starting to move towards China economically. That's a very, very dangerous proposition. So this is going to this is going to take a lot of work. I mean, it's going to take a lot of us to get together and sit down. Really, how do we figure this thing out? And if we don't. Uh, China is going to continue to be on the move. So we got to get it right. But if it's not right for the American worker, then it's not going to work for us anyway. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. How do you cope when there's something weighing on you or something you need to get off your chest? You know the best way to do it? Best way to cope is to talk about it. Not just cram it down, not do what generations of New Englanders have done, just stuff their feelings down, maybe cover it with a coat of booze. No. You got to talk to someone, you got to work it out, get it off your chest. And just by doing that, you will feel better. We all carry around different stressors, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash PSA. Go today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash PSA. Hey, everyone. It's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Taxes, fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details. Napa! 
Silence is golden, especially when it comes to brakes. That's why Napa Silent Guard are built to be one of the smoothest and most quiet brakes on the market. Made with fiber-reinforced shims that eliminate noise for the life of the pad. Rubber-coated hardware for a better fit and quality design that meets and exceeds OE performance. Silent Guard brakes deliver the stopping power drivers demand. Available now at Napa locations nationwide. The other debate that is happening in Washington is about the Mueller report. Um, do you believe that... It reminded di- me of law school. It was brutal. <laughs> yes, I'm sure. I thought it was kind of a snappy narrative. Uh, the, do you believe that Donald Trump has committed impeachable offenses? I do. I think he obstructed justice. Yeah, I do. I think on multiple occasions. I mean, the most clear was when it, the, the, the legal counsel said, whatever you do, Mr. President... Uh, don't talk to Jeff Sessions. And the, the phrase was obstruction. Like, we're worried about obstruction. That was the word they used. And two days later, he's at Mar-a-Lago like, hey, come on over here. I want to talk to you. And it's clear. How do you think your House Democratic majority should proceed now? I think we're doing it the right way. I think um, I have a lot of confidence in Jerry Nadler. I've known him my entire career. I have confidence in Leader Pelosi, Speaker Pelosi. I think we are going down the right track. We have these hearings um, to the extent we can have Mueller testify, people from the administration testify. It's got to be live and, and the American people need to see what's going on. That's critically important because all of these other testimonies didn't happen behind the scenes. And so nobody really kind of knows what's going on. And again, you're, t- you're trying to talk to the person in Youngstown, Ohio, who just lost their job or is dealing with taking their kids to school. And, you know, it's like back and forth between divorced parents. I mean, the stuff that people go through, they're not really paying attention. So having a a real um, thoughtful approach of how we get this information out to the American people, I think is critically important. And then let's see where it goes. And if we got to go down that road, then we have to. Um, but again, we know the Senate's not going to take it up. Like there's no way Mitch McConnell's going to like take up, you know, or pass anyway, convict him. Um, and, you know, I mean, we're already struggling with the subpoenas. I mean, I think there's an emerging constitutional crisis happening here. Do you think there is value, whether historically or morally or constitutionally, in if Trump committed impeachable offenses, having the House impeach him, even if we know that he's not going to be removed in the Senate? Is that important to send a message that conduct like this will not be allowed to pass? Or is it a, a potentially a waste of time and resources to do that if you know what the end result is going to be? Yeah, I mean, I you know, I go back and forth to be quite honest with you. Um, you know, because we do too. It's yeah, a constant topic. On the yeah, podcast. it's it's really. I mean, it's hard because impeachment is a political decision. I mean, that's why it's in Congress. So it's political. So weighing the political context for our party and the election is important. And to see Trump running around in six months saying the Senate said I'm exonerated. Uh, you know, and, and, and then wasting six months not talking about what have you done about General Motors in Northeast Ohio? What have you done about electric vehicles? What have you done about, you know, lifting people up in this economy? Because he's running around, you know, talking about 
how great the economy is. We need to be talking about how great it is not for so many people. And that would really derail any message of like, he's not, he, he didn't deliver for you, which is what I'm saying. Like he did not, he made these promises. I heard him. He was in Ohio and he told people not to sell their house. And that was just months ago. And we're losing jobs left and right now. And it will, we will get completely off of that message. And then that worker in Youngstown at Falcon Transport is going to say, these guys aren't talking about me. It's all this politics and everything else. So I go back and forth. But at this point, I'm leaning like, let's let Chairman Nadler do his thing. When we think about pulling together a coalition that can get us to 270, we have to do two things, right? This is just the pure math of living in an electoral college system is we have to win back those voters, the people who voted for you and voted for Trump in 16, people who voted for Barack Obama and voted for Trump. But we also have to engage the more than 4 million Obama voters who didn't turn out. Mm -hmm. How do you think about the balance between exciting progressive Democrats to get involved in the process and winning over you know, so-called moderates in states like Ohio, Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania? Big aspirational vision for the country, you know? dominating these industries, setting the country right, reforming education, focusing on getting healthy and, and vibrant in the country. Like, let's go. We are in a competition with China right now that no one in America is really talking about. It's a centerpiece of what I talk about, but we're not having this conversation. And I'm telling you, this is the dominating uh, politic happening today, is our relationship with and our competition with China. Even, you know, it like that all makes sense, like mm -hmm. in a vacuum of this is the things that are going to come out of my mouth as a candidate to voters. Mm -hmm. But that's not how elections work, as you know. And so if you are a Democratic nominee, you're going to you're saying we got to talk about the economy, we got to talk about the economy. And Trump is out there. He's probably got a nickname for you. And he's screaming about immigration. The country's being invaded by MS-13. What is your theory for engaging with Trump to make sure your message does not get lost? It's going to be a united country versus a divided country. And I think emotionally right now, the entire country is completely frustrated with how divided we are. And they know that the president intentionally tries to divide us. That's his goal with everything he does. And it can be, you know, LeBron James and Maxine Waters or John McCain and, uh, you know, Barbara Bush. It's immigration, divide, 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 divide. It has caused so much anxiety in our country. And I, I want to know what the national stress level is right now. I was in Iowa and some, some gentleman in the back of the room said, I have PTS, post-Trump uh, syndrome. He said, I'm, we're exhausted out here. They are exhausted with the division. And what I'm going to present is like, look, yeah, you're right. You know what? We can have a 10-point plan on this and a 10-point plan on that. If we're not united with a leader who actually wants to respect everyone, wants to bring everybody together, ha has won Trump voters and watched them go to Trump, and I've been watching the gridlock my, almost my entire career going back. I got in right after the Iraq war. I've seen this going on, and I'm tired of it. And so my pledge is we're going to come together as a country. We're going to take the temperature down. We're going to respect each other. We're going to care about each other. Doesn't mean we're always going to agree. And we're, we're going to have fights. And I'm Irish. I say, like, the old Irish saying, is this a private fight or can anyone get into it? <laughs> like, I'm down with it. I'm down with the political, you know, brass knuckles. Fine. But we've got to come together. The challenge of 
unity is it's a two-way street, right? Barack Obama ran around the country in 2008 with a very unifying message. He won a massive victory by modern standards, 53% of the vote, also picking up states that Democrats had not won since in a century. And on before he's even sworn in, John Boehner says he's not going to work with him on saving the economy. Yeah. And Mitch McConnell says his top priority is defeating Barack Obama. How can you, as president, succeed where President Obama failed in uniting the country? Because Trump may be gone. He may be back at Mar-a-Lago. He might be in prison. Who knows? But Mitch McConnell's <laughs> very likely to still be there. Mm -hmm. And all the forces that created Trump are still there. So how do, how do you bridge that gap where others haven't been able to? I think it's important during the campaign to actually have key proposals that I'm talking about. And, and real action items that we're talking about around electric vehicles, around you know, food as medicine and getting healthy and changing the incentives, around social-emotional learning in the schools and, and, and seeing all the benefits of how that works, of increased test scores and all of this stuff by actually taking care of the trauma that our kids are experiencing every day. When we, when we talk in specifics, those issues are crossing party lines. Like if you if you look at talking about health, that's not a political – that's not like what side are you on? Like we're going to get healthy as a country and we're going to incentivize doctors and patients to get rebates and refunds for getting healthy. Is that Democrat or Republican? I mean nobody knows. It's, it sounds smart to me. Same with social-emotional learning. It's backed with like by the Brookings Institution. It's backed by the American Enterprise Institute. It has bipartisan support. You talk about helping vets. We're doing a lot around, you know, trying to heal vets through alternative treatments like yoga and meditation and acupuncture. There's Democrats and Republicans. I mean, one of my best vet supporters is a Republican. So by campaigning on these specific issues around the economy, is an electric vehicle, is that Democrat or Republican? You know, I mean, we're losing auto jobs. This is the next generation coming. So the point is, talk about specifics. I think it's going to be a lot like 92 in the sense that, you know, like Carville used to say, you got to explain it to them, you know, like explain to people what your specific plan is. And then when you get elected, it is a mandate of sorts. And then, you know, you may have some advantage, not that you're going to pass the whole agenda, but you're going to have the, the, the support of the American people. This is obviously a very crowded field um, with, you know, whatever it is, 20 people running now, everyone from vice president to a mayor to members of Congress. And let's say folks are listening to this and they're very interested in what you're saying. They like the your proposals. They like your message. And then they discover that up until a few years ago, the a leading Demo a Democratic candidate for president was someone who defined define themselves as pro-life and was a member of the NRA. Mm -hmm. Like why should that not give progressive Democratic voters pause about Tim Ryan? I think progressives are open-minded. They make decisions based on evidence and experience. And my experience, you know, I came into Congress as a Catholic school kid from Northeast Ohio. My position on abortion, you know, was something I quite frankly didn't consider a whole lot. I was a pro-life member. Uh, I started working with Rosa Delora, who was a pro-choice member. I started working with NARAL on trying to uh, increase access to birth control and contraception. And through that process, I, for the first time in my life, met women who had abortions. 
and who had very complicated circumstances that they went through. And you can see that my position slowly through committee votes and everything over the course of my career started to change. And it got to the point where I just was going to change. And I wrote an op-ed in the Akron Beacon Journal. And, you know, it was one of those things. Like, if you don't trust me on it, like, there's nothing I can do. But it was an, an honest evolution of because of I, I met people. And you can talk to, like, people at NARAL now, and they will tell you, like, Tim was very open-minded. We worked with him really well. We had an honest dialogue, even when I was a pro-life person. Like, we were trying to figure out how we solve a problem. And they were very open-hearted, and I was open-hearted, and things just kind of went down that direction to where I couldn't think, I did not think that the government should be between a woman and her doctor. And the same thing happened with um, the NRA, uh, in which, you know, after watching these terrible uh, school shootings, that it changed me. I mean, it just, I hope, I think it, like, it affected everybody in the country. And to just watch the NRA not even want to try to be a part of the solution on anything, like, they didn't even want to have a conversation. And and that, to me, was was offensive. I gave all my NRA money back to the gun control groups um, and said, I'm, you know, I'm done. I mean, this is something, again, you can see my, my votes evolve slowly over time in my committee um, where people try to put riders on bills for these different things. And again, it's like, look, I mean, I, all I can tell people is uh, progressive is like, I met people, I learned things, I watched, my heart was affected by what I saw and who I met. And I changed my position knowing that there would be people saying, oh, he's just, you know, changing his position. So, um, would, would you campaign on gun safety proposals? Hey, everyone. It's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Taxes, fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details. You can live out your MasterChef dreams when you find a professional on Angie to tackle your dream kitchen remodel. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Visit Angie.com. You can do this when you Angie that. Why are smart businesses graduating to NetSuite by Oracle? Because NetSuite eliminates the expense of multiple business systems by consolidating your operations together into one. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. NetSuite reduces IT costs because it lives in the cloud with no hardware required, so you can access it from anywhere. You cut the cost and headaches of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. Bringing all your major business processes into one platform improves efficiency, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move, so do the math. You'll see how you'll profit with NetSuite, too. And now, by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Just go to netsuite.com slash podcast25 for more information. That's netsuite.com slash podcast25. Yeah, I have. I mean, I have been. I think it's an important component. But I will say this. We're talking about social-emotional learning in the schools. 
I think we got to start playing offense. I mean, yeah, of course we need an assault weapons ban and background check and Charleston loophole and, and all of that. But we need to play offense. And when you look at 90% of the kids who do school shootings um, actually come from the school or actually in the school. And 70% of those kids say that they felt bullied, they felt traumatized, they felt isolated. And what the social and emotional learning programs do is they really try to connect the kids to each other and build that support system, connect them to the teacher, connect them to the community. And so when the uh, people that evaluated Sandy Hook, they came out with three top three proposals as to how to prevent this from ever happening again. And it was the gun control issues, it was mental health, and it was social and emotional learning. That's what they discovered can best prevent this from happening in the future. So let's start playing offense in America. I mean, I guess if there's one theme that I'm really going to push, it's like, why do we sit back and accept this idea that, that um, we, we're just surviving you know, we want to thrive. We want our kids to thrive. We want our communities to thrive. And let's play offense like we know social and emotional learning works. Let's do it. We know that a, a small tweak in some of our uh, diet and getting coached by our doctors and rewarding them, that works. Let's go. Let's do it. You know, we know yoga and mindfulness and these things help veterans heal and get off taking 15 prescription drugs a day. What are we waiting for? You know, we know there's going to be 30 million electric vehicles. We know additives growing at, tw- you know, 25 to 30% a year. What are we doing? Every candidate who comes through Pod Save America here has written a book. And those books are almost all the same. They are, they vary in writing ability and storytelling, but they're, they're memoirs or they're bios or slash campaign plans slash policy platforms. You wrote a book long before his presidential campaign. It's not. It's very different than all these other books. And it's about mindfulness, which yeah. I think would catch a lot of people by surprise who've listened to this interview and sort of or look at your bio and it's like Tim Ryan, <laughs> Cleveland Browns, Chicken Wings, Miller Lite, and he's writing about yoga. Like I'd like I'd like to know like how you got involved in that, how it became such a passion for you. And like, would you be our first yogi president? Uh, yeah, probably. Um, uh, yeah. So I, I told you I went to Catholic school. I had a priest, uh, Father Crumley, who was very involved in my Catholic school. I went to John F. Kennedy High School in Warren, Ohio. Uh, and he taught me centering prayer. And centering prayer is an old Catholic meditation technique that the Catholic monks used a thousand years ago. And I loved it. It was like, you know, quiet time, great for your head and all that other stuff. And then I also knew about Phil Jackson. I was a you know athlete growing up. So Phil Jackson, the coach of the Chicago Bulls, dating myself, right? And it's not it's not LeBron and Kobe. It's like Michael Jordan. Um, he uh, Phil Jackson taught meditation yoga to his players, and they obviously performed at you know very very high levels. And I thought you know Catholic priest who's like you know great guy and Phil Jackson, my favorite coach. Like, there's got to be something here. And I, it, it sent me on a journey to really explore different kinds of meditation over the course of my life. And uh, right after President Obama got elected in 08, I was getting to the point where I was almost burnt out. I mean, I had been in Congress now six, seven years, traveling Ohio, campaigning with everybody. We had taken the, the majority back in 06. And I went on a five-day retreat right after the election. 
And it was uh, more and more silence over the course of that retreat. And to the point at the end, there was 36 hours of silence. And it was basically you, you try to follow your breath. Your mind will go to the past and the future and you try to get, bring it back to your breath. And what happens is your stress level goes down because you're thinking about the present moment as opposed to being anxious about the past or the future, which is all it is. It's stress, like what I say stupid last week to somebody, my wife, my kid, my whatever. And what do I worry about in the future? And so I had a, a really profound experience of how powerful the present moment is and how you can actually cultivate being in the zone, like an old athlete, right? I'm thinking like, this is like being in the zone. Like you can be in flow and you can actually get your mind in that state. And I'm years and years away from having ever been an athlete, right? And I immediately thought, boy, these vets coming back could really use this. You know, I thought that this would be great for our healthcare system because stress is such a killer, you know, it causes inflammation and inflammation causes high blood pressure and heart disease and all this other stuff. And, um, and our school kids, like I just thought my, fo your, your focus, your concentration level goes like you can really, sh it's like sharpening a blade. You can really become uh, super sharp, which like you see Tom Brady, you see LeBron James, you see Kobe Bryant. It's like, how do they get that way? I mean, they, 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 they do these practices. So I became a very passionate advocate for it because it, it's, it's cheap and it's, there's no side effects and it can have tremendous benefits for people uh, that uh, I hope people will try it. You know, I'm not, I don't like really push it down anybody's throat, but I do, I do say that it can be very, very beneficial. And so I became a very passionate advocate for it and I do some hot yoga too, old beat up athlete's body. Uh, hot yoga makes me feel good. Last question. You have a choice. Mm -hmm. You, Tim Ryan, can win the 2020 election. Or the Cleveland Browns can win the Super Bowl? Oh, my God. That is an unfair, <laughs> totally unfair question. <laughs> it would be close, but I would take uh, being president. Yeah. Okay. Well, hope, yeah. hope you don't have to run for re-election. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, it's, it's been great. But uh, we're excited about the Browns this year. It's like yeah. finally, finally we got some we got some yeah, you have high, expect high expectations now. We're keeping them moderated. We don't want to get nutty, but yeah, you, yeah we're excited. You get you uh, trade for a couple of flamboyant uh, wide receivers from New York, and you, you might not work out that way. Yeah, yeah. Well, fortunately, they're friends. Yeah. Landry and Odell yeah. are old friends, so hopefully, and Baker's just he's a yeah. he's a grinder. I mean, he's great. He's like there seven in the morning. Yeah. He's like going. So um, we're we're really excited about it, and I'm excited about the opportunity to be here. I'm big fans of you guys, and. You know, I'm excited about trying to build something. I mean, I think people over the course of this interview can really see that I'm trying to talk about things differently. I'm trying to change the conversation, you know, and definitely want to invite people to come to TimRyanForAmerica.com and try to, you know, be a part of what I think can be a really big shift in the country. And I'm excited about it. All right. Congressman Tim Ryan, thank you so much for joining us on Pod Save America. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it.
The Angie's List you know and trust is now Angie, and we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews, but now we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie, and we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I, or download the app today. Why are smart businesses graduating to NetSuite by Oracle? Because NetSuite eliminates the expense of multiple business systems by consolidating your operations together into one. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. NetSuite reduces IT costs because it lives in the cloud with no hardware required, so you can access it from anywhere. You cut the cost and headaches of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. Bringing all your major business processes into one platform improves efficiency, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move, so do the math. You'll see how you'll profit with NetSuite, too. And now, by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Just go to netsuite.com slash podcast25 for more information. That's netsuite.com slash podcast25.